The Map Room, a business owner's guide to the art of harnessing choice. The podcast that explores the world of business through the decisions owners face and the choices they create. Join the conversation with Paul Barnes and Stuart Brown as they walk through some of the toughest decisions you have to make while leading a business and how understanding the choices can be used to guide strategy and optimize outcomes. Brought to you by Map and a host of special guests. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us once more in the Map Room, where over the next hour we're going to be talking with another agency owner whose journey, whose experience, and hopefully whose insights will help you get some value for you and your business. So last month we listened to Daniel Priestley, and Daniel was explaining to us his version of what he calls the entrepreneur's journey. And put a challenge in there that quite a lot of our uh, clients and listeners have resonated with, which was the challenge of a lifestyle business versus a performance business. And essentially, Daniel asked us the question was, would we want to cross the desert or do we want to stick to 12 people? And in his mind, it was a very black and white view. Now, in terms of performance, the performance business, I think we've probably covered quite a bit of that in previous editions of the podcast, uh, where we've looked at growth and we've looked at exit and those areas. So today we really want to talk about the lifestyle business. And part of that is in uh, reaction to we've had a lot of questions on our WhatsApp group in terms of lifestyle and as to what people resonate, what is a lifestyle business, what does it look like, how do you know when you have one, and maybe what lifestyle does it give. So I'm delighted to welcome into today. Uh, we're going to stick in the Southern Hemisphere, actually, and we have another Antipodean in with us today, and that is Amanda Walls, who's the founder of Cedarwood Digital. Amanda, good morning to you, and thank you so much for spending the time to come and talk to us. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me as well. I'm looking forward to chatting through this with you today. So let's rewind the clock slightly. What does a now? I now know you're from Melbourne. So what does a young lady from Melbourne do finding herself running a digital agency in Manchester? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're right. I grew up in Melbourne. I was a journalist, and that was very much my sort of uh, career path. I guess that I chose and started out with. While I was studying journalism, I came across digital marketing and the concept of it, and I sort of realised in the Australian space that. There wasn't a huge amount of potential, particularly on the e-commerce side, which is where my sort of interest lay at that point. So I crossed the pond, I guess, as you would say. I guess that's maybe more American, but I came back to the UK to really focus in on that digital space. Um, and the first experience that I had was straight into an agency here in Manchester. And I worked at that agency for around about six years before I founded Cedarwood. And I learned a lot from that experience. And I think a couple of the key takeaways that I really had there was, you know, when I joined the agency, it was full service. So it was web design, web development, digital marketing, affiliate marketing, email marketing. It was, you know, everything that you could have kind of thrown into one bucket, I guess, let's say. And I think during my time there, what I realized was that I really wanted an agency that specialized. So when I started Cedarwood, I very much wanted to focus on SEO, PPC and digital PR. There were the three areas that I felt I knew the most about. There were the three areas that I felt had a lot of growth potential. And also I felt that they were three areas that people would really benefit from having that kind of specialized process around. So I guess it was probably within my fourth or fifth year at my previous agency um, when I started to you know, understand that that was something I wanted to do on my own. We'd been through an experience where that agency had tried to grow. So when I joined, I think there was actually nine of us 
when we got to the kind of four-year mark, we'd hit, I think it was 19 or 20. We'd grown very, very quickly. Um, I think we were battling with those challenges of how do you implement like a middle management and, you know, where do we go from here? And I actually ended up with a team of, I think it was nine direct reports, which was... Too many. Yeah, way too many. Um, and it was it was really hard. And like I learned a lot about management from that, but I don't even know whether it was the right kind of management because I was kind of putting out a lot of fires. I was trying to manage clients and and manage, you know, sort of eight or nine people at the same time, many of whom were kind of starting their careers as well. So at a time where they perhaps need a little bit more hands-on management than, you know, people that have slightly more established career paths. So I think being in that experience and kind of looking through that was very much a catalyst for me to start my own agency. I felt like I'd learned a lot from that. I'd understood that, you know, with Cedarwood, I, I didn't want a huge agency. I didn't want to go through that kind of growth challenge again. So, you know, we have 10 staff today, we'll probably look to push to 12. And then I think, you know, we're, we're quite happy at that level. And I think I learned a lot about how I wanted to structure that both from a client and a staff perspective in terms of, you know, I never wanted to find someone in a position where they were managing so many staff. So today, the maximum number of reports anyone has is three uh, within our business, which is, you know, a really nice manageable yep. amount. Um, it ensures that everyone gets... I guess the right level of support and, you know, growth that they need as well. And also that as a business, we have a nice number of clients who we can really, you know, we can really kind of deep dive into what their needs are rather than trying to um, take on a lot of clients just to facilitate, I guess, that growth. So in a kind of long-winded way, that's that's how Cedarwood came about. I, it's actually um, seven years on Friday. Oh, wow. So, wow. yeah. But I um, I booked my car in for an MOT because I forgot. So <laughs> I won't be joining the celebrations, but, but the guys in the office will be having one for sure. Fantastic. So one of the questions I was going to ask you, and, and I think you've explained to me a bit there, is this choice of the concept of a full service agency versus a niche. And as you spoke there, I, I was not aware of your background in journalism. So there is a logic, as you say, to if you're getting involved with particularly potentially PR and, and even SEO, because it's the crafting of the word very often, isn't it, that, that gives you gives you better results for that. So was it the so that the niche, was that down to your perceived skill set for yourself? Or had you seen that as the niche that maybe in your previous agency or just in the market that you thought, I think this is where I need to be? So I think it's both. So in my previous agency, my role had been the head of digital marketing. So my role encompassed SEO, PPC, and not, I guess it was more link building back then. You know, this is sort yeah. of seven, eight years ago, digital PR is relatively sort of newly coined terms. So I wanted something that I felt comfortable with, I think with web design and development, because it wasn't my skill set. If something went wrong, I can't fix it. Yep. I, you know, I can read code, but I'm very limited in terms of, you know, building a website or creating that for anyone. And I think the other thing that I really wanted to focus on with the business was the retained model. Um, and that lends itself much better to the SEO, PPC and digital yep. PR side of things. I think with web design and web development, it's more project based. Yep. And for the business that I wanted to create, the retained model just lent itself better to kind of supporting and developing that growth as opposed to, to doing things on a project basis. Um, that was part of the decision too. Fascinating. And, and in terms of Obviously, we're you know we're talking today specifically about the concept of what in this uh, conversation is is a lifestyle business. And you mentioned there, you know, a retainer model. Was the retainer model a key thing for you to say this is um, almost an attribute of a lifestyle business or an attribute of the business that I want, or did you just look at it to say you know 
if I look in the market, most people, if we just use SEO for an example, most people are on a retained uh, spend. What was your view on what, why was a retained model so key for you? I, I definitely think that in the market, the retained model is popular for SEO. But I think because I knew that I wanted to develop a lifestyle agency, I wanted to be able to create an environment where we had a sustained flow of income. And I felt that if I'd gone with like a project-based model, I think that I do think that can work really well for, for businesses. I'm, I'm sort of not saying that. I don't think that's a good approach. But I think you constantly have to be um, bringing on new clients, bringing on new projects. You, you have that kind of constant sales cycle and it has to be quite an aggressive sales cycle because when a project finishes, you have to have another one ready to go. Absolutely. Whereas I think with the retained model, a lot of that lends itself to – more of an account management style of things, so um, client services. So we have, I've got clients that we work with at Cedarwood that I've worked with for six or seven years, built the relationship with them. That was where my strength lay. So a lot of where my strengths had come from my previous agency was in the the client management side of things. And I felt that I would have, I guess, a better opportunity to build a business where I'd built those client relationships and therefore been able to, you know, build and continue that way so maybe for five six seven years whereas if I'd gone for a project model that there's no way I mean maybe but it would be a lot more difficult to get four five six seven years worth of work out of one client I I think from what we see at MAP and you know we're looking at today over 115 agencies in, in different sectors but a few things that you've said there really resonate with not just necessarily the lifestyle business, but the point of, first of all, we, it's evidential to us that people who look at a niche tend to fare better. So, yes, there are some fantastic organisations that aren't so niche and there's some fantastic full-service agencies, but our evidence looking at profitability and specifically the ability to grow, if that's their aim, tends to be um, more rapid and more focused when there's a niche. That's that's one thing. Um, and the other classic thing, which I, people who have maybe returning to the to the map room and have, and have heard us speak before, um, I bring a lot of things back to sport. And the point of um, I, w- I could talk to you about the best sport on the planet, rugby league, but you're on the wrong side of Australia, so you'll <laughs> be AFL territory, won't you? Yeah, 100%. Uh, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a reason why you know there are only 13 players in rugby league pitch, or whether it's 11 in soccer or whatever sport you have. That when you get to that point, all the things that you said you've experienced there through your own uh, work previously, when you've got nine reports, far too many to, mm-hmm. to manage properly, um, that again, evidentially, we can see that. So it's it's fascinating for me that you've you've taken something from experience and thought, you know, I don't wish to replicate that again in my own business um, and and maybe done that from your experience of it rather than the analytical view that says evidence shows this. But it's both of those things, both those things work. The other thing that I wanted to just return on then was your point on um, project based. And, and I was involved in an agency that we moved from project into more of a into more of a sort of retained design model was, as you say, it's very much feast and famine. Uh, if you're not careful, it's very uh, easy to be in growth mode in projects because you can, ha- you know, you can put two projects become four projects become six projects. That's one thing. But the one thing that we found was, and you mentioned it there, the sort of perception of value from a client for the account management. So if somebody's coming to you with a, a design and build, let's just say, and we try to advise many clients now about pricing in your client services, pricing in your project management, whichever way you're going to look at it. And very often the client sees, well, what's your day rate for an engineer? and doesn't perceive the value in someone's got to look after that client. Where I've been, when I've talked to other clients who've got a retained model like, like yours, Amanda, 
there is an inherent understanding from the client that I am paying this amount of money. Some of them may be the more needy ones may may say, look, you know, and therefore it's important I speak to you every month because I'm paying for it. But others just take it as a value that they are paying for the fact that somebody is there looking after their interests, even when you're not deep into a project. And I think it probably says something about the the clients that you would choose to take on as well, that they perceive value in that model. Um, but again, re- really, really interesting. So what you're saying there is that when you started the business, you... You've mentioned there about obviously the size. So uh, you were conscious of them not wanting to either grow too quickly the business or maybe grow the people too quickly. And you're saying now that so do you, you said you're at 10 and you might go to 12. And would that be, is 12 sort of where you see that, you know, I'm going to use the word ceiling, not in a negative way. Do you see that at the moment to say, do you know what, if we take Daniel's gospel either go for 12 or go for 80 are you a are you a disciple of that thought or is it just a 12 is an easy number to manage no I think you know very much in terms of what Daniel said that the 12 is a sweet spot for us and I think what we found at the minute is within our structure we have you know like a manager of the PPC team we have a manager of our digital PR team we will hopefully within the next year or so have a manager of our SEO team so that's our kind of three disciplines covered which including myself is four and then obviously we have eight left over so that means that each of those management will have you know two to three Mm. staff maximum so I think that the reason 12 lends itself so nicely is because again it allows for a very manageable clear structure across the three services that we have at the minute we have a you know our our only kind of barrier to growing to 12 is our is our office and it only seats 10 people and trying to find 12 is uh, slightly more challenging than it than I would like it to be but I think that that number, you know, again, we grew at my last agency so quickly. I think we grew within sort of six to nine months by eight or nine staff. And that was a lot. You know, it's it's not just onboarding the staff and training them. It's familiarizing them with the clients. And clients don't tend to like a lot of turnover. Yep. So, you know, again, I think it's about, you know, making those staff feel very valued and, and kind of building that process as well. So that's why we've kind of gone for 12. We've got you know, our, our PPC manager's been with us for be five years next month. Our digital PR manager's been with us for four and a half years. And that's very much a cornerstone mm. of our business as well is that we don't just want to keep our staff to 12. We, we really want to keep our staff. Yep. And um, and I think that's that's kind of why we've settled there. You, you mentioned there about um, staff. And one of the things that we've seen significant changes, obviously, since the sort of uh, pandemic is the piece about uh, hybrid or remote working. And you've said there that one of the limits or one of the barriers to growth is is potentially physically desk space. So talk through that then. To your culture, are you a are you an office based team? Are you a hybrid team? How do how do you work in the office? Yeah, so we're fully office based, which is um, maybe I guess a little bit unusual for agencies yeah. in this space now. We have been you know, we made that decision, you know, together with many of our staff. The feedback that we had from the staff was that particularly because we had um, a couple of graduates came in around the COVID time, we found that they wanted to be, uh, you, they wanted that immersive experience. Yep. So you learn a lot through osmosis, particularly in a marketing agency. So they wanted to be around to kind of hear calls, to hear conversations, mm. to throw ideas around. The digital PR space in particular is incredibly collaborative. So if you're newsjacking or jumping on a trend, it's really, really easy to kind of communicate. And we also had, you know, a number of staff who um, might have relocated for work. 
So they did that either before COVID or during yep. COVID. They would have relocated regardless of whether it was kind of hybrid, remote, or um, just because they wanted to live in the city centre. And they, they didn't know anyone. So, you know, coming into work and having that yep. social experience has been quite positive for their mental health as well. So I think that's worked really well for us. That said, the staff do work days from home. So, you know, we're, we're fairly flexible from that perspective. We leave it up to the staff, but we find that more often than not, they choose to come into the office. I think we're, we're kind of lucky because I would say nearly every member of our staff lives within walking distance to the office. I think we only have two staff that commute. So that, again, probably makes it a little bit easier because they're, you know, they're, they're not having to come from a long distance, although one girl does commute from past Preston, so <laughs> which I give so much credit every morning to, for doing that. And she still gets in before me. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a shame on me. But I think that that kind of in-office has worked really well for us. I think, I think for agencies, like you, you've got to pick what works for you. Some yep. people work really well fully remote, some people hybrid, some people in-office. But, you know, for us, and, and we've seen a lot of our clients returning to that way of working as well, that's, that's how we've, we work best. Mm. I think, again, looking across the piece that we look after, and there's a very split piece. I mean, you know, Matt, we, we tend to be more hybrid and more remote. And that was to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of what we do, cloud accounting can be done anywhere, you know, that kind of thing. But those clients that tend to work on a more collaborative piece, be that design, be it PR, as you've said, uh, are definitely seeing a move towards more and more office and more and more collaboration. And I just think, you know, I always say the same thing. You know, we've had a business psychologist on, a Hannah, and we're going to have Leanne, another business psychologist on in a couple of episodes time, that whether we like it or not, we are social creatures. And the reason most of us struggled in lockdown was for that reason. And so now I think as people are starting to you know, believe that we are managing this. We're not, we're never going to be out of COVID in my opinion, but we're managing it. I do see definitely a drive to more and more people wanting to be together more. Um, so it's interesting, but as you say, you've done that in consultation with your staff and it's about the, uh, you know, the retention and the well-being, which is very, very important in a, in, a, in any small business, really. Um, one thing you, you said there about, and it, you said about commuting and it reminded me of... Um, my time at MN and, and, and I was so again city centre office founded by uh, Lou, female founder, and it was I noticed when I looked at your site it was you know I was you know ten staff and what ten ten ladies and one bloke, uh, and and I was the only male in that business for a period of time, um, not necessarily by design but that, that's the way it worked. Talk me through that culture. How how does that work? Again, is that just a function of the people, the skills that you needed? Was it a decision by yourself to say, Do you know what, I'm gonna keep the blokes out at the door and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think James secretly loves it to be honest. He'll probably kill me if he hears this podcast for saying that. Um, I think he thinks it improved his chances of winning the fantasy football, but he's actually being beaten, I think. So uh, I don't, don't know if that's really worked for him. But no, um, it, it wasn't by choice in any way, shape or form. That was just the way that it fell when we hired. Um, that, that's kind of how it how it works. Yeah. Um, there isn't anything really more to it than that. And um, it is interesting, though, because when I had my previous role, when I was hired in, I was the um, I was one woman with eight guys. So that was an experience for me. I really enjoyed it. I felt like um, when I walked into the office on the first day, the whiteboard was covered with like Call of Duty, um, kill death ratios yeah, yeah. and the lineup for the, fi the kind of five-a-side football team. And then within a month, I'd managed to kind of, you know, at least pinch half the board for semi-work related items 
Um, but yeah, I think, you know, that that was just how it happened to be. We are, um, we do a lot of PR that tends to attract more female yeah. candidates um, to our hiring process. But yeah, there's no no sort of rhyme or reason behind it. That's just just how it worked out. Be interesting again. I suppose it's it's something which you you might not know. You might not choose to to know with with what the client's view is because there was one point there in in MN where Lou was very specific about wanting a a you know to be the to, well the ambition was to be the best design team in the in the country, but predominantly then driven by females and that was as much about being able to say to clients you know look if you're going to have this view of the world then you know you might want to look at particularly in that space where it was very tech driven and there was lots of as you say coding and it was you know 20 something sat with the headphones on sat with the hoodies on sit in the corner not speaking to anybody um and the ability then to say look this is a completely different view of the world because if you're you know I'm, we're sat here in media city and and you know well-known or client of mn's for a long long time was was the bbc and obviously if you look at an audience there you can look at a specific program and guess the gender bias of an audience, but in the main, you're looking at audience, and whichever way we look at it, it's, it's likely to be 50-50 if you look at it across the broad scale. So therefore, looking at, you know, that's a male-led design, that's a female-led design, I thought was really interesting in terms of the client's perspective. And some specifically go for that, and some don't care either way, and some just say, you know, it is what it is. So do you think that your um, your culture has developed specifically because of having that and i'm going to use gender bias in a positive way i don't mean in, in, a, in a negative way there do you think your culture is different because of that do you think it would be different if you had more um gender diversity in there or is it not something that concerns you i i don't think it's something that concerns me i think that our culture would be the same regardless you know we are very focused on our staff you know developing a really positive culture and i think that that is what's most important to us. What I would say, I think about the clients, and this is particularly for people that we pitch to, I don't think they necessarily consider it. I think 99% of the time they want to hear testimonials and case studies. Yep. That's what they're really focusing in on. And then I think after that, they're sort of then looking at, okay, who's behind this? They want to see the results that are achieved rather than kind of who's mm. necessarily achieving them. And that's kind of one of my ethos as well, I think. I mean, we use, obviously, as an accountancy business, MAP will use the word KPIs in a very literal sense. And very often, you know, we will be presenting to you on a monthly basis and show you some very statistical data. And that's the role of the accountant. So I'm going to use the word KPIs in that instance because I can't think of a better <laughs> explanation, really. But if you were looking then at your culture now and the culture that you need to best suit what you want from your business and how you think you best suit, best serve your clients, what are the sort of culture barometers or, or things that you see that, that go, that's how Cedarwood does it, or that's a Cedarwood person, that's not a Cedarwood person, to pinch that kind of phrase? I mean, I guess I think sort of the first KPI that we look at in terms of the culture is our staff retention. So that is incredibly important. I think it's important not only to us as a business, because as we know, it has been a challenging hiring yeah. environment, although admittedly, probably in the last six months, we feel that's eased a bit. Um, on our side, we, we get, I get a lot of candidates sent to me from um, from recruiters all the time now, which, which didn't happen for two years. But I think that's a really big um, KPI for us because it's a big KPI for our clients and they have established relationships with people. You know, we've got people that have been working on their accounts for three, four years. They know them inside out. And to bring someone new onto that account, I mean, it's great because you get the fresh ideas and, and everything along that lines, but we don't have is that history. 
And I think clients can be reluctant to have too much of a change mm. or too many different people. You know, they're, they're sort of asking questions like, why, why have I got so many different mm. account managers or, or what's happened here? So that I think for us and our clients is a really, really big KPI. But from a culture perspective, I mean, I, I grew up in Australia. Australia's quite laid back, quite relaxed, quite stress-free. And I try to drive a culture that very much uh, mimics that. I think when I first sort of worked in agency, there was kind of stress and there was a lot of pressure and there's a lot of, um, you know, because there was such a strong kind of drive to grow, everything had to be done yesterday and, and everything had, had so much going to it. Whereas I've sort of said to my staff, you know, take your time and do things properly. It's okay to make mistakes, you know, things happen. And, and I try to take that, that, I guess, cultural side of things that more. And, and when I use the word laid back, I don't mean like lazy yep. or in that way. It's more of just like a, a kind of relaxed um, approach. And I actually had, funnily enough, I had a client say to me the other day, a, a new client that we spoke to, that um, they were working with a web development company that were based in Australia. And she said, I quite like working with them. She goes, because they're quite laid back, but then when I need something, they're incredibly direct. They just tell me how it is. And she goes, and normally, like, I wouldn't have that, you know, as a client, I wouldn't be spoken to in that way. But she goes, actually, sometimes I just need to know what's going on. So that probably summarizes our, our ethos is that yeah. we want to have a culture where, you know, the staff are supported, they feel relaxed, you know, we have flexible working time in the office, so they can kind of come and go and, and fit that around as they like. But then, you know, we also are incredibly focused on getting the job done and we're very, very kind of straight and, and clear with our clients. And in terms of that team then, so, um, and I totally respect and understand what you're saying there about you bringing your sort of, um, you know, native culture into the place. And I'm sure that when you first came to Japan, it was very different. Um, you know, again, I mentioned that we've got um, Leanne coming on the business psychologist in a few episodes of time. And, and Leanne has done um, staff engagement questionnaires and surveys with, with MAP and our team. And those things work if you're prepared to listen to what people say. If you're going to go in there with a, and we've just mentioned we're in Media City today, and we could use recent recent BBC <laughs> um, news, but we won't get into into politics. We always say in, in the podcast is if you're going to um, only wish to hear what you wish to hear back, they may not work. Yeah. But if you've got a culture where, or you as the the driver of that business and the CEO saying, look, I want to be inclusive someone's going to bring something different to our business then all those things work if you're prepared to listen um if you go to the point that says no i'm looking to you know I, i've got this uh, let's just example this perfect model and i just need 100 disciples to build this model then those things are not going to work so that's what i tend to find those clients we speak to that make them work have gone into it with an open mind in the first place and that's that's fascinating um We've we've probably um, wandered slightly off script in terms of when we're talking about gender, but one thing that always fascinates me is your experiences. And so, not only have you so you've founded a business and you're now running a business. What's been your experience, if anything, of being a female CEO? Has it has it something that you've thought about? Is it something you don't think about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's something that I I don't really think about. I think that comes probably comes back to my like laid back <laughs> kind of you know I just kind of take things how they go and and nothing really bothers me too much and I'm quite you know quite flexible with things and and I I try not to you know I'm very focused on. Uh, building my business, looking after my staff, looking after my clients. And I, I try not to focus too much on the peripheral. Like I've, I'm, I'm very clear on where we need to get to. 
But that said, you know, there are definitely challenges. Um, I think there are challenges for all CEOs. Um, I think we've had experiences where I've felt at times like just disappointed by things that have happened. And so this isn't sort of with any of our current, our current clients are fantastic. Um, we, I feel very lucky every day to work with a lot of the people that we work with. Um, I think they're, they're great and so respectful to us. And we, we have virtually, well, we have no conflict with any of our current clients, which is great because I've worked the past, even on accounts where, you know, there is maybe a little bit of, you know, the client isn't happy or this or that. And we're very lucky to have a situation where we, we have those longstanding relationships. But there's definitely um, been times, and I, I remember an example, probably would have been maybe two years ago now when we were at Pitch. And I was pitching and it was during COVID. So it was um, on Teams, which, you know, is always a little bit more difficult yeah. to read people because you're not sat in a room with them. <laughs> you kind of don't get that rapport. And we've kind of gone through and we were doing the presentation and we were talking about the kind of financials. So, we were, you know, getting into the, the kind of projection process. And the the person that I was pitching to just, just kind of turned around to me and said, oh, I've been on your Meet the Team page. Um, just looks like a bunch of kids. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> I, I, you know, I always, I'm, I'm not really ever short of words, but at that point I was very short of words because I, I didn't really know how to respond to that in that instance. Um, just felt very disappointed. Did, did you feel it was, was it insulting? Do you think? Did you see it as that? I thought, I thought it was insulting, yeah. and I actually thought it was more insulting to like my staff. I was yeah. quite, I mean, I took it as a compliment. I was like, oh, yeah. do you really think I'm that young? Like, <laughs> thank you very much. But, uh, but, but given that I'm about ten years older than yeah. the majority of my yeah. staff. You know, I think I'm pretty much the only one that, that would have taken it that way. And I, I just felt like it was, it detracted from what, you know, what we were trying to achieve. And I just thought it wasn't relevant. And um, it, it's disappointing as well, because, you know, even if those staff, let's say, look younger, they've still got a lot of experience. They've got a hell of a lot to offer. I just thought it was, it was a disappointing um, mm. way of approaching that. And it's not, it's not an isolated incident. It doesn't happen all the time, for mm. sure. But it's definitely not an isolated incident. So I, I think there are definitely still challenges that we... We need to overcome. Um, I think there's a lot that's being done to to yeah. do that, but I still think there's more to be done for sure. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 and, that, and that's been my experience. Um, fascinating there because it, I think there's a very um, – what kind of sector or what kind of industry was that client in? Can you recall? It, they were in – well, they're in B2B. Okay, but I, I, was in, I, was in, I was interested in the industry sector. The reason I'm saying that is I think one of the reasons that – you know, digital in itself, and the reason that you know, um, you know, the market is so diverse in terms of the number of agencies is that digital for so many years was perceived as this thing that sat in the corner anyway. If you look mm -hmm. at some of the bigger media buying agencies and where we were twenty years ago, it's very different. And the fact that you know yourself and other people can found can found these businesses from nothing is because that opportunity exists. But by definition, if you know, I always say that you know my children are all digital publishers long before I ever was. I can do things now with we were talking about TikTok earlier and all those kind of things that can do things that I can't do. So I think not only is it absolutely insulting in my opinion, it's also very short sighted for that client that I would personally, I would probably trust, I would trust people half my age or fractured my age to do to understand those things far better than I would um so I, I wonder as I say the set they were in whether actually they were probably maybe being disrespectful of whole digital marting anyway because it wasn't the other way they did their business but that's that that's that's an aside really um one thing I did want to just maybe get your opinion on there which is 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 um quite recent uh you mentioned about you've got uh, members of staff who've come sort of straight out of, out of university um 
is that um, I saw recently, and we've just obviously just had International uh, Women's Day um, last week now or the week before, um, and one of the things I saw there was that still today in terms of create st- in its students at the student level, more females are studying creative um, industries, creative um, degrees, creative um, uh, qualifications, but then, and, and then maybe not following it through into the industry. Uh, do you have a view on that? Have you seen, you know... You know, people start it and then stop it. You mentioned that obviously PR may be more suited to some of you know more of the, more of the female uh, students. What's your thoughts on that? I think, to be honest, I think that's an industry that spans gender. So I think it's it's an issue. Sorry, not an industry that spans mm-hmm. male and female, and perhaps um, females are, are more sort of disproportionately impacted. I think there's two things that are causing that problem. So. I think firstly, uh, many of the, well, so I've actually had firsthand experience with some of the course syllabuses, particularly relating to digital marketing, and some of them are missing out practical, a lot of practical elements. So when we're hiring graduates, for example, our last graduate role that we advertised, we had 422 applicants. Wow. That's one of the problems. Yeah. So, you know, you can imagine we're trying to sift through 422 CVs. It's hard. Mm. We don't have the time. No business has the time to kind of sift through that many CVs. So I think that's challenge one is that there is a lot of people and not the same volume of jobs, particularly at graduate level, because agencies are struggling to hire sort of mid to senior level and therefore they don't really have the people to train at the graduate level, to train the graduates, let's say. So there's less jobs at graduate level. We're getting a lot of applications. And if there's, you know, again, if there's a lot of girls that are studying um, graphics or, or design, then they, they're in that pool of 420. Mm. You know, it, it's it's hard. It's challenging, I think, from that perspective. And that, you know, in itself presents its own challenge. But I actually did um, a course. It was a couple of years ago now. And it said about um, it's uh, there's a Google thing called I'm Remarkable. I don't know if, if anyone's familiar with it, but it was designed at empowering women um, to kind of speak more about their achievements and one of the statistics that they had, and, and please don't quote me on this because I can't remember the exact statistic, but it said something along the lines of women are like 20, like 75% less likely to talk about their achievements yes. than their male counterparts. And it could potentially be then that when they're maybe going for those interviews, that they're not pushing themselves enough or pushing themselves in the same way. And the whole kind of point behind this course was that it was to build confidence to sort of say, you know, this is how you can talk more about Mm. yourself um, in that experience. So that, again, I think also plays into it. You know, if you've got 425 applicants, are they selling themselves in the same way? Mm. And I think that's a a really interesting point. And there's courses out there that, you know, obviously designed to to try and help Mm. and improve that. But a lot of the data around it just showcased that, that they, they weren't selling themselves in the mm. same way. Fascinating. Probably down to personality traits, which again is something which we uh, we have on our, our slate to discuss going forward. Um, so talk to me about then, so so the business you've got today, and, and you've mentioned there about, and obviously we've invited you in to talk today specifically because we wanted a conversation about the concept of a, of a, of a lifestyle business. And one of the things that um, Daniel spoke very passionately about uh, last month was that one of the key elements for a successful lifestyle business is what he called a balanced portfolio of needs. Where are you with that in terms of have you got key things? And again, we're not asking you to share anything, anything that's confidential, but do you have, you know, a set of 
indicators for yourself? Do you have things that say, okay, this is my portfolio of needs? So rather than, as we say, maybe say, look, we're going all out for growth, you're saying to me, look, that's not what I want. And you've mentioned some things that clearly are maybe your personality and your culture. You know, I like the long, I like the longevity of the staff. We like to keep it as a as a team environment. You didn't use the word family, but it sounds like that as well. You know what I mean? We like to, and we like to have... Um, familiarity and we like to have consistency with our clients and I would argue I would suggest probably that I understand your clients want that but I would imagine as well that you probably look at a client to look at that and go is this going to be a short-term winner or is this this a long-term relationship so talk us through some of the things that you think are, are your needs and your drivers to give you the business that you want yeah absolutely so type of client is incredibly important understanding if the client is the right client for us. So there's a number of things that goes into that. Um, We do a lot of screening at pitch stage and that might be, um, you know, do they have realistic expectations? Sometimes we'll have people that will approach us and sort of say, right, we've got three months and we want these 30 keywords on page one of Google. You know, you've all heard it before. And we just say, absolutely not. That is definitely more hassle than it's worth. And no, just no (laughs) is really the way out of that. You know, we, in terms of, I think, our portfolio of needs, that that first one really lies on the the characteristic of that client. And, you know, we are looking for clients that are going to be a long-term partnership. We're not a high-churn business. We haven't churned a lot of clients. I think we churned one client last year um, and one the year before, and that was actually a, a ski holiday. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's COVID. Seasonal, <laughs> people, seasonal, aren't, yeah. people aren't going skiing yeah. during COVID, sadly. Yeah. So I think... It's really important to us to understand um, clients that we're going to have a long-term relationship with, clients that we're going to have a good relationship with, so clients with good expectations, clients where we can get stuff done. So we're a small agency and agility is one of our most important things. So when I'm talking to clients, I'm not looking for a huge amount of red tape to have to cut through. So, you know, I've spoken to clients in the past that have had or have worked on projects where there'd be eight or nine key stakeholders that are all contributing to one one piece of content that needs to be signed off. That's not right for us. It takes too long. Um, it's, you know, I take a month to get that on the website and then we're not we're not seeing the results that we need to and, and that that's not working for us. So there's things from that perspective as well. So, you know, clients' ways of working, how much support they can give us, how much support we can give them. Are we the right fit for them? Are they the right fit for us? So lots and lots of things that we take into account from that perspective. Retainer size as well. So we have very strict minimum retainer sizes across SEO, digital PR and PPC. The reason that we have this is because we don't want lots of sort of little clients yeah. where we can't make an impact. So we've dictated those retainer sizes based on how much time we feel we need to have an impact. Obviously, it changes per client because some clients will need more work than others depending yeah. on competition in the industry, you know, their current position, etc. But by putting those minimums in place and we have on our website as well, we qualify all of our leads on the back of that. So I've got a little tick box that basically says, you know, checking that you're going to spend a minimum of X amount yeah. on, you know, the management yeah. of PPC or the SEO campaigns. And we ask people to tick that before they submit the form. So that qualifies our leads from that perspective as well. Although, we do have some people tick it and then I'll go, go through yeah. the process and they'll say, I've got 750 pound. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, why did you tick the box? Yeah. And they say, oh, you know, we thought it might be negotiable, yeah. uh, which is great. You know, <laughs> that, that's exactly what you want. But I th- and I think that that's really important as well. So, you know, setting those those kind of boundaries and expectations from the start and having that really good relationship with our client. You know, we we want to make a difference. Like we don't want to take on a client for client's sakes. We want to make 
it worked for them. And off the back of that, they will stay with us. And that, I think, is is the key to what we need to make the business successful. I think what you what you just said there, I would just echo that. I mean, the evidence is you've got very low staff, staff turnover, you've got very low client turnover. That clearly means that something is being done well. You're in a, you're in a sector that is very often, I'm going to use the word abused by some clients, that they will churn agencies because they think, oh, you know, someone's going to have a better idea or someone's going to do it cheaper or someone's going to do something. And particularly in, I've seen it very much in the SEO space, people argue that something can be done cheaper or faster. Um, but you're clearly doing something around whether that's, you know, outperforming, whether that's just your, whether it's skill or style. One of my piece of advice I often say to people is understand the difference between your skill in what you're delivering and the style in which you deliver it. And, you know, the best client respects both of those, which is, um, you know, something that's you're talking about there about also almost qualifying things out. This is, again, a, you may not have recognised this, but it's a, a um, success factor in in a successful lifestyle business that actually rather than you know gung-ho going for growth and you know I've worked in organizations where you know people are hauled over the coals for not closing that opportunity and not getting that contract when actually you sit back and say but was it really worth it was it the best thing to do and I say if you're going all out for growth the growth mindset will be there's no such thing as a bad client it's just another client ran to our universe and I think what you're saying there is part of the driver for us in our lifestyle business is we're very specific about who we work with for lots of reasons culturally and as you say your ability to get things done and your ability to actually make a difference to that client but that is evidenced in the fact that you've got these clients that have stayed with you in, in quite a volatile section of the market mm-hmm. for over, over a period of time so again that's something that we see evidentially in successful lifestyle businesses they are they are not afraid to say no they will be very they will look at that client and you know do, do you have a do you have an image of a seedwood client can you say by asking those questions i can see whether that's the kind of thing i want to go for or i want to walk away from yeah absolutely and when we do the initial calls so basically when we have our new business process and we have that initial kind of half an hour call with the clients we have very uh, clear questions as to what we want to cover but i think what i would add to that as well is that the the hidden cost of getting the wrong client is very substantial and We've had situations, you know, over the last few years, as I'm sure all agencies have, where I've had a staff member kind of come in off a call, very upset, um, sort of notably upset. Maybe a client has been quite aggressive or we've taken on the wrong kind of client. Um, you know, the expectations haven't been met, but the expectations maybe weren't the right expectations to start off with. I've got to then spend time, you know, with that client kind of con- with the uh, staff member consoling them, rebuilding their confidence, you know, that there's there's that whole element of it. Yeah. And then if that staff member did decide to leave, you know, after a period of time, the cost of that is very high to train someone new. And it's kind of like all of that for the sake of a client that we maybe shouldn't have taken on in the first place, like the cost is is very high. Yeah. And I think often when you're at pitch and you're, you've got a retainer kind of waved in front of you, sometimes it's easy to be blind to that. Of course it is. But I think once you've experienced the impact that that can have on staff or staff members, and I've seen it here and I've seen it at previous work as well, you realise that it's just not worth it. Mm. Um, and I think that that – but it, it also takes a lot of courage at times to say that, to actually say, no, I'm not going to go ahead mm. with that. Because I understand that the wider impact and the wider costs of that are are more. Mm. Again, 
you know whether it's by design but what you what you're uh, exhibiting there is is a classic success scenario when we look at lifestyle businesses that you are looking there and looking at the impact on your business but what's been very clear from this conversation Amanda is your business is not just the entity it's not just Cedarwood it's not the P&L that we produce it very much is your people it is you, you're clearly coming across as the culture is about the people you you take pride in the fact that your staff have been there a long time you're talking about you know staff retention being a KPI all of those things but it, and it's refreshing to hear but it's a reason why you, you you know you are successful today and I believe you continue to have a successful lifestyle business is because you're looking at the impact of that client on that team I have been in organizations before and I've seen it in agencies and I've seen, I've seen it in some clients now where actually the last client is the one that breaks the back of so many of the, whether it's the staff, it's the model, whatever it is, because they just keep thinking this. And, and there is a, there's very much a, you know, you, you mentioned about the right kind of client for Cedarwood and for your team, that there is very much a dangerous route I see with particularly new companies and new agencies where they always want the bigger client. They want to, because they want, you know, they want the, if it might be the logo on the website or whatever it is, but, you know, a badge of honor to them is the fact that this next big client, but the big client is the kind of client who will then turn around and be, say, make a comment about, you know, the age of your staff or whatever. So, and it's very, it's very difficult. And as you, you use the phrase there, that it's brave. I would say it's very courageous. It's very brave, but ultimately it's exceptionally sensible to understand that does does this I'm giving all my time and my staff are giving my time for this client if that client is not putting at the same amount of consideration and value into that relationship question why they're doing it it's not just it doesn't matter what we're doing what service we're giving it really does have to be uh two things really um, I'm I'm conscious of of time and we and we're running up to um sort of the last 10 or 15 minutes I wanted to to move on to a few things that I'm a I'm a big believer in you. You've mentioned the uh, vision and values is one of my big things, and culture is an absolute uh, function of that. And, and I've spoken before, and I'll speak again on the fact that you get the culture that you have because of your people, and you either design it or it designs your business, etc. Um, but I also talk about very much it's you know it's great to have the vision and values, and it's great to have the culture, but you have to then have. To have a successful business, you have to have the commercial validation. So I did notice when I was doing some research before today that you'd been very successful in in and, and what and I will say coming out of this sort of post pandemic period about the you had a number of search awards last year, twenty twenty two. Talk to us about those a little bit. What did what were they? What what did they mean to you and your team? And what met, what do you believe you were doing different to win that award as compared to maybe your competitors? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the commercial validation is something that is really important to us. It's incredibly important to me and I think probably sits above a, you know, a lot of the other things that we do. So we were really delighted to win. We won the best use of um, search for finance. I'm trying to remember now. <laughs> best use of search finance uh, with one of our clients who is a loan provider. And we won a silver for best use of PR and best SEO agency, which was amazing. It's nice to have that validation yeah. as well. So I think that that meant a lot to us because it just, you know, it gave us that kind of reassurance within the industry. And I think combined with the case studies, so we are a very case study heavy business. That's something that's incredibly important. We're a very testimonial heavy business. That's something that we put a lot of time into collecting. And I think on our website we have over 25 case studies 
which is a lot has taken yep. a lot of our time to do. I'm not going to lie. Yep. And um, and I do a lot of work on our website, so I've had those painstaking hours. I also unfortunately seem to be loafed with the job of writing the awards entries. So that's I have firsthand experience. I think with with all of this, but it really does pay off because I think that that is the that's what people are looking at. Yes. They're looking at the validation from the work that you've done from your clients. They're looking at the validation from your peers within yes. the community. And yes. I also think with with things like awards, and I'm completely aware that people have different views on them. So some people think they're a complete waste of time. Some people really like them. I'm quite a positive person, so I like to celebrate what people are doing in our industry. And I think that element is great because we're lifting people up mm. who are doing well. And I think that's that's a really nice thing to do. And I think as an industry, it's something we should do more of yep. because there are a lot of people doing really great work in our industry. And um, and if they've got an opportunity to showcase that, then brilliant. And if they can showcase that in addition to things like testimonials and case studies, which are you know, not necessarily peer approved, but they're client approved, yep. then I think that's a really nice um, round way of, of kind of validating yourself commercially because you're saying that, you know, I'm recognized by my peers. I'm also recognized by yep. the clients that I've done the work for. Um, you know, across a range of different sectors, and, and here's some great examples of what we've done. Interesting, interesting. Um, you mentioned something there, which I, I suppose I'm guilty of my um, ignorance of the sector you're in. You mentioned there about SEO and PR, and, and it's an obvious juncture, but it's not something I've sort of thought about before. So, my early days of buying SEO services would have been, you know, um, basically keywords. Excuse my ignorance from saying the wrong thing, but keywords and not then paid for an AdWords, but clearly then there was a move towards, you know, write your blogs, get things in there. And you're talking there about PR. So talk us through how. So I'm assuming what you're saying now is that, you know, the, the right use of digital PR is almost a self-driving SEO generator is that what you're saying yeah i mean if we had about seven days i could yeah. talk through <laughs> SEO and digital PR. Yeah, if you give me seven minutes to do it um i think that you know if we if we look at digital pr as a, yeah. a specific entity digital pr is is a great way to to improve seo because it is um it's naturally building a lot of things google likes it's building trust it's building authority it's building expertise and i think it's something that has really increased a lot in the SEO mm. space in the last couple of years. And we've probably benefited a lot from publicity from bigger agencies who've really been pushing the digital PR angle, which has made it a bit more of a buzzword. And uh, events like Brighton SEO having the online PR show, which I'm speaking at actually, okay. incidentally, <laughs> which is obviously really nice. But I think that, um, you know, from that perspective, that has become much more integrated part of SEO. I mean, SEO has changed so much even since I started, yep. you know, over 10 years ago now, I freak out when I see some of the things that were happening back then. Um, I think at one point I saw that people in SEO were essentially writing an article. Um, they were doing five paragraphs. They were writing it three different times, chucking it into a tool that spat it back out 300 yeah. times yeah. and posting yeah. it on blogs. And I mean, that's really scary <laughs> to think about now but I think you know that it has changed and the digital PR side of things has come in and it, it's hard work digital PR you know it's getting to be quite crowded and you've really got to be innovative and creative and and data driven as well to get uh, journalists to cover that but it is playing a, a really important role in in supporting SEO and I think the two marry together very nicely to offer a very complementary service. It's also fascinating for me because I see that as a if you like, almost a complete circle, or to use the phrase that I never understood, uh, you know, squaring the circle. Um, but squaring the circle of, you know, you said to me earlier, you know, you started, and I didn't know, you started as a journalist, 
you went into agency land. You then decided that sort of SEO and 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 paid was was the route you went down, and now almost the journalistic ability and your, and your sort of journalistic heritage is coming back in and, and squaring that circle. I, f- I find that gen- genuinely fascinating. So listen, a, f- a few few minutes to go. A couple of things I really wanted to just talk about then. We are seeing lots of. Um, you mentioned it earlier about even seeing uh, you know recruitment on the uplift in the last six months, and we've seen that in in Map, and we've seen it in lots of our clients. And I think we are now starting to see a steadying of the ways in this sense of people now saying, you know what, we probably have put this behind us. We probably are moving forward. Nothing's going to be the same as it was, and whether that's we say we were both working. Lots of things, lots of things are different. But if you're looking forward now, then as as you know. Uh, as a as an agency owner what's going to keep you up at night what's 2023 20, nightmares look like and what do what's exciting for the year ahead so from a nightmares perspective i think that sits on the e-commerce side more than anything i think that a lot of e-commerce businesses have had a fantastic 2020 21 yeah. 22 through the kind of covid period they've made a lot of sales mm-hmm. i think people have just bought a lot of stuff yeah in the last three years because they've been at home they've had nothing mm-hmm. to do and i think that is going to pose challenges for 2023 i think we have obviously there's there's tax rises coming in there's increasing costs there's inflation there's um, still pretty high shipping costs for people that are shipping internationally for, for products mm-hmm. I think there's a perfect storm of problems for e-commerce websites. And I think there's lower consumer demand and also cost of living. So when you combine all those six things together, I think our nightmare for 2023 will be, we'll sit with our e-commerce clients predominantly because I think that all of those things make for a more challenging environment. In terms of kind of positives, um, we've obviously seen a really good start to 2023. A lot of that has sat within the professional services. So Great. we do a lot of work in professional services. And that that's kind of across, um, you know, insurance, legal finance predominantly. I think, you know, those sectors are continuing to grow. And also you have sectors like, I use insurance as an example, people always need it, you know, yeah. regardless of how the economic climate is, you still need to insure your home, you still need to, you know, insure to go on holiday and, and that type of thing. So I think where our growth will come is in those sectors which uh, are not unaffected, but they're more insulated yep. to, to impact. Yep. So that, that's where I see a lot of our growth. And certainly since the start of the year, that's where, you know, the majority of our interest has come from. It's funny, I as, as I said earlier, I, I spent the majority of my career not in this space. Uh, and I still... Um, Keeping in touch with a number of a number of our ex colleagues and friends in other sectors, and it's interesting across the board there is a, and I'm talking also about um, uh, you know, PE style and where people are seeing their investments. If we go back to the concept of you know the dot com failure was one thing, and then obviously you know the sort of financial crisis, and then this pandemic has has definitely, as you say, given potentially e commerce a blip. It's uh, sorry a, a big lift. It's given others a change. But we are seeing now a drive back in what's perceived to be the more traditional sectors. Using insurance there, um, one of the things we're involved in the Bulletproof Agency Network, uh, Michael F. from Riskbox will always say, you know, I'm the one who's got nothing exciting to say in the room, but it's it's, it's an important thing for everybody. We all we all need it, and it is it is fascinating. I think there's definitely. Um, there's definitely a sort of um, it's a little bit like you know safety in gold for treasuries. There is a thing now that the the sort of more traditional, less less sexy, less tumultuous markets are definitely definitely benefiting. Okay, um, so that's this year. So that's 
that's 2023 covered. So now get your uh, get your sort of forward goggles on. Fast forward three years for Cedarwood, and or maybe Amanda, and those two things may be connected. They may not be. Um, what what do you see if we sat down in three years' time? What's going to have been the constant? What's not going to be? What's going to have remained, and what's going to have changed? I I think we should sit down in three years' time and and have this conversation again because I would really like. I think it would be really interesting, but. I think the the constant is the understanding of what we want to get out of the business. So I think, you know, I'm I'm very clear on terms of how I want the business to be. I'm very happy with where it is now. I'm very happy with the clients that we work with. I'm very happy with our staff. I'm very happy with our structure, our kind of day in, day out, our processes. I don't think that will change. Um, maybe maybe our staff will too. Maybe our staff, yeah. I don't know. If they, if they listen to this, they might. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, hopefully not, obviously. So I don't think a lot of that will change. Um, I do. I think we'll hire new people. I think we'll hire a, a couple more. I think we will get to that 12 number. I think we will onboard a few new clients. But I, you know, Cedarwood has changed in terms of our growth. We've grown quite a bit in the last two years. But in terms of our structure and our processes, we haven't actually changed that much as a business. I think we we have something that works. So I don't want to rewrite the wheel. Like, you know, I, I don't want to change things because I'm, I'm happy from that perspective. Where I think our biggest difference might be is just in terms of the industries that our clients sit in. So I feel like at the minute we're kind of, we have a lot of clients across a lot of different industries. And I think over the next couple of years, we will find that that focuses more around that professional services side of things. So that kind of financial, that legal, the the insurance, all of that. Because I think that's where we're seeing, I would say the best results at the minute as well. So I think more of a focus towards that, it it works well with our way of working and it might be, that as part of that kind of longevity and that that client targeting or what does that good client look like, that that's more of where our focus area goes. And not to discount the other industries because we'll, we'll obviously still hopefully work with clients in those industries, but it might just be that over the next 12 to 24 months with the changing economic climate, we also have to adapt yep. to that. But I, I think, you know, as a small agency, we're primed to adapt to that. We just have to be ready to. You've said a few things there. So, I mean... Obviously, you know, in terms of wrapping up, obviously, thank you for your time. It's been, it's been I always love these conversations. There's, there's always something different every time I speak to somebody. But you've said a few things there that are very clear to me, which is you mentioned agility first, obviously agility. And um, when Paul first said, look, I think you should get a Mandarin from Cedarwood to talk on the podcast, was not only because his view is, you know, you do run a successful lifestyle business and you're very clear that it's that and that's your aim and ambition. But he did say to me, you know, Amanda's got absolute clarity in what her needs are. She's got clarity what she wants and that has come through this. And and if that's one, we always like to try and give her, you know, some clear takeaways that other agency owners can listen to. And the one thing I would say there is that, you know, if you're going after, if the lifestyle business is for you, and as, as I said at the very the top of the show here, that we had a lot of feedback on our WhatsApp group about people Paul um, posed the question, are you going for performance? Are you lifestyle? And the majority came back lifestyle, but we're unsure what that meant is, I think, listening to you today, it is that piece that says, get your portfolio of needs, understand what it is, be absolute clear on the trajectory of the business for you and your staff, and don't hesitate, you know, don't, don't deviate from that. Yes, be agile, but don't sell your soul, don't change your values, don't change your principles. That would be the, that's the takeaway for me, Amanda, spending this hour with you, and I hope it is for, for many of our listeners. So 
all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for joining us in the map room. Thank you if you're a returning listener. Thank you even more if you're a new listener. And hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks. Bye for now. The Map Room has been brought to you by Map, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies. Subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode.